Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. Let's sing this together. I count on one thing. I count on one thing. The same God who never fails will not fail me now. He won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God is never late. He's working all things out. He's working all things out. Yes, I fail me now no, you won't fail me now in the way the same God is everything is working all things out working all things out yes I will lift you high in the lowest valley yes I
I greet you with the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I urge you to keep the fight of faith. Fight to retain your faith in the good news of Jesus, who conquered sin and death. Fight for fellowship with God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who longs to be with you. Fight for fellowship with the Divine Church, for you belong to the body, and the body belongs to you. Fight oppression and injustice, which opposes the kingdom of God. And fight to share your faith and make disciples until you reach one, till everyone. The Good Fight. church. You good? Hey, it's great to be with you guys this morning. For those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is David Walters. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning, especially on this special day called Father's Day. And if you are a father, we want to honor you. So would you stand up and the rest of us uh, that are not standing up, let's just honor these guys. Remain standing for about 30 minutes. We're just going to clap. There's no message today. It's just clapping for about the nine. Yeah, just kidding. Um, most of the guys in here, we couldn't stand up for 30 minutes. We need a break. So um, you can have a seat. Hey, fatherhood is a challenge. Statistically speaking, it's an important job that we have to do. And so uh, you deserve to be honored for the job that you're doing and also encouraged to do a job well done. And uh, so um, I want to just celebrate that. We love honoring like moms on Mother's Day, dads on Father's Day um, with just a couple of treats because... Look, let's be honest, um, if you're a mom or your dad, you just kind of get neglected a lot of times, and um, especially if you're a dad, let's be honest. You know, Father's Day, it's kind of like a secondary day. Anyway, we won't, I'll save that sermon for another day. Um, but we do want to honor a couple of dads um, this morning through some gift cards, and we kind of made them special for specific, like, dads that might be in the room. And, um, and so I just wanted to see if there were um, any dads that were here that, who had multiple kids involved in multiple activities. If you are a dad who's here and you've got multiple children involved in multiple activities, would you go ahead and stand up uh, by process of elimination? We'll find out who has the most uh, kids involved in multiple activities. So, um, you know, uh, we won't start with the Walter standard, which is four. We'll start with two. So if you've got more than two kids who are involved in activities, um, remain standing. If you've got more than two involved in activities, remain standing. If you've got more than three involved in multiple activities, then remain standing. Um, I can either give my... Oh, wait. Hey, back there. Hey, we've got a gift card for you. Um, so after the service, make sure you see me. It's a Dick's Sporting Goods um, gift card because if they're involved in multiple activities, you might be making multiple trips there and that might help out with you. Or you could just save it and spend it on yourself. Um, we wanted to celebrate um, another category of dads that are here. Graduation season was just upon us. Um, if you are a, a dad who has like multiple kids in that kind of college age or just beyond age where they still might be living in your basement age. Um, would you stand up? If you got multiple kids in college age of life um, and maybe somebody living in your basement, go ahead and stand up. Um, all right, so we've got a couple to go from. If, if you've got more, more than um, two, would you remain standing? More than two? Remain standing. Do we have anybody? Do we have anybody with a recent college grad? Somebody that graduated college this year. Any one of those guys that were just standing with a kid that just graduated college? All right, anybody that just graduated high school this past year? Anybody with just one? Awesome. Well, we got you a Bass Pro Shops gift card um, because you probably need some recreation and some leisure, and so. Get some fishing gear, go fishing. And then, hey, this last one, I always like to do this just to see if we can um, get some people to disclose some information before they're really ready to do this. So are there any dads who are here and your wife is expecting? If you are a dad and your wife is expecting, would you go ahead and stand up? And um, we just, oh, all right, we've got a little battle here going. Okay, all right, so here's, here's how, here's how we're going we're gonna, to um, we're gonna just... Um, but who has the closest due date? What should, what's the due date? <laughs> who has 12.01? Anybody got 12.01 as of time? Who's one? What? Oh, 12.30, 1.1. Who's 
All right, man. Hey, look, this is for you as a Home Depot gift card. Hey, we'll get, you can come and get it or I'll give it to you. Like, he's coming to get it. All right. This just taking, taking time. And then look, just don't forget your sporting goods gift card. There we go. Congratulations. Hey, let's give it up for dads one more time. It really is. Your task and your role, it's super important, and uh, we love you, and we honor you, and we pray God's best for you. Um, so it's a privilege to be here on Father's Day. It's a privilege to be here today. Uh, today is our third day, or our third Sunday in the series that we uh, kicked off at the beginning of the month called The Good Fight. Uh, the reason that we kind of arrived at this series is that this will be my last series as the lead pastor of the Vine. If you're new to the church, welcome to the Vine. Um, big announcement um, that was made a couple of uh, months ago, uh, but we're living into in this month, and we chose to take a look at a letter that was written um, that is included in the Bible from a pastor named Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, and this was one of the last letters that he wrote, and in this last letter, and actually he wrote two letters to this young minister named Timothy, he, he, he contained a phrase in there, and that was um, to, to fight the good fight. And so he uses this analogy and this metaphor of, of the fact that sometimes in life, we move from um, life as a playground to life as a battleground. And, and we've talked about how those, those turns and those twists, those circumstances and situation, they come along unexpectedly. It might not be a part of our plan, but it's a part of God's plan, um, where, or it's just something that's happened to you, and all of a sudden life does not feel like the fun, satisfying, fulfilling, abundant life that Jesus Christ says he came to give, give us in, in John 10, 10. And it feels more like a fight. It feels more like a competition. And, and so we've been talking about how we are called to fight this good fight when sometimes in life, maybe in church life, things don't go the way that you expect them to go. How do you fight that good fight? And we just discovered in, in chapter one uh, that um, when we're called to fight this good fight, we're called to fight it with faith, um, or with good and for good, with faith and with good conscience, meaning that we do the right things. And so we fight for the right things. And once we fight for the right thing and do the right thing, then we move on to the next right thing. Last week, we talked about how in this battleground of life and faith, we've got a very powerful weapon. It's called prayer. It's the most underutilized weapon that we have, but it is the most powerful weapon that we have. And so we talked about the full significance of that. Um, this week, um, I, I had a, a really important decision to make, and that's because this is my last like kind of full sermon. Now, I'll be here on the 30th. Next week, um, I'll be in Nicaragua with our mission team. In fact, if you're on the mission team uh, going to Nicaragua, will you raise your hand so that we can kind of celebrate you? So we've got a couple of hands that are raised here at our 11 o'clock team. So we want to celebrate you. We'll be in Nicaragua climbing a volcano while y'all are in worship next week. Um, and, and so this is like the last like little like message that I have. I'll be here on the 30th, but we're going to do something a little bit different that morning. And so uh, you won't want to miss that, but it'll be different. And so there's a little bit of pressure this morning, a little bit of pressure on me. I mean, this is kind of the, like the last one, right? And so um, the last one, a lot of times feels like the first one. And the first one, it makes you nervous. It reminded me of the story of this young pastor who'd never preached before. He got appointed to a church um, and he talked to his old um, predecessor who was retiring. And he said, hey, I need help. I'm extremely nervous. What do I need to do to calm my nerves at the beginning of the message? And he said, okay, so when you preach your first message, we need you to tell a joke or do something, say something startling to get everybody's attention. And then um, that'll calm your nerves. And he said, well, like what? And the old pastor, retiring pastor said, well, tell him a joke, say something like this. Um, Some of the best years of my life were spent in the arms of a woman who was not my wife. Yeah, and, and, and you'll get a reaction kind of like you did. What, what, where is this going? And then when you get their attention, deliver the punchline, which is, it was the arms of my mother. Um, so, yeah, um, so deliver that punchline. So the young pastor was like, okay. So he gets up there the first Sunday, he, he grips the like pulpit, and he looks nervously out, and he said, some of the best years of my life were spent in the arms of a woman who was not my wife. And it worked. Like he had everybody's attention. It worked so well, he forgot the punchline and said, but for the life of me, I can't remember who she was. So like there's a little bit of nervousness when you're preaching your last sermon because it's kind of like your first one. And this is like, you know, you don't do this intentionally. I know it's not like a thing that you do, but like pastors all the time, when we get done preaching a message, we either get nothing or we get the like standard, hey, good message, which was like, I don't know what else to say to you after the service. So, Or sometimes you'll hear, 
man, you really hit a home run today. I don't know why we choose that baseball metaphor, but we do. And so we hear that every once in a while. And so when you walk away on a Sunday and somebody goes, you didn't hit a home run, you go, man, did I do my job today? And then I was, remember, uh, I was reminded by God, not remembered by God, but reminded by God. Um, one afternoon when I was driving home, I was like, I think I might have just like swung and struck out. And God said, I just called you to faithfulness. That's all I called you to do. And I remember one of my base, favorite baseball players growing up was this guy named Tony Gwynn. He didn't even play for the Braves. He played for the San Diego Padres. He had one of the highest lifetime batting averages. And he wasn't going up there hitting home runs every week. He was going up there making contact. He, he was hitting singles. He was hitting doubles and occasional triple. And every once in a while, he'd let one fly out of the park. And, um, and so there's like this pressure, you know, to hit a home run today. But look, I'm just looking for contact today, okay? I'm just looking to get through it, get through the at-bat. That would be a win for today. And, um, and so this, there's a lot of pressure on this message. And so it was like, where do you settle? Because we went through chapter one the first week, chapter two last week, a little bit of chapter three last week as well. And, and so where do you go? And in chapter four, just kind of using the progression of the, um, of the book or the letter that Paul's writing to Timothy, he writes down some really powerful words that I just kind of want to leave with you as my last full sermon. So if you brought your Bibles, you got a Bible app, I'm going to invite you to go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now remember, Paul's an older pastor. He's, he's nearing his death. So this is his, uh, one of his last letters, one of three last letters that he's written. Um, he, he, he uses the phrase, fight the good fight, but he also like says in this letter, like, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course in this race. And he's giving departing words to a young pastor. In fact, Timothy's so young, we don't know how young he is. He could actually be in his teens. So he could be a pastor who's in his teens. Um, and so for all of you teenagers out there sensing a call to God, um, don't run from that, live into that. And he writes um, one verse that I wanted to share with you this morning. And I believe that if we can live into this verse as a church and as individuals, then, um, then we'll be able to fight the good fight. And we'll be able to say on the back end that we are victorious in the battlegrounds of life. And so um, in chapter 4, beginning with verse 12, or with verse 12, this is what Paul writes to this young minister. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth, comma, but. Man, I love, I love the word but in the Bible. Like anytime you see comma, but, like you need to pay attention to that. All right, you need to pay attention to buts in the Bible. All right, they're there for a reason. But set an example for the believers. Would you believe that believers need an example set for them? But set an example for the believers in five things, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And, and this is my final words to you. Let no one look down upon you because you're young. But set an example for the believers, like for the body of believers. Listen, like we can't set an example for the rest of the world because we, can, we don't know how to live into like our, our faith like within the body of believers. So it was true 2,000 years ago. It's still true today. We need to learn how to set an example for one another. Then by our collective example, we can go and set it for other people to see that there is something worth following when it comes to this Jesus guy because people live differently. Set an example in um, speech and in conduct and love and faith and in purity. And the reason that I wanted to leave this as my last word to you is because when I look at the church as a whole, we're a young church. We're just 12 years old. And I tell people all the time, the, metaphor, the, the main metaphor for the church in the New Testament is a body. And so churches, the age of a church is a lot like the age of a person's body. So I don't know about you, I grew up in a church that was like 125 years old. And it kind of felt like a 125-year-old person. Do any of y'all know any 125-year-old people? No, they're what? Dead, yeah. That's what it kind of felt like. I don't know, <laughs> like... Dang, he, yeah, he went there. All right, that did. So like when you're dealing with like a 12-year-old church, what is it like? It's like a 12-year-old person. And I don't want to diminish any 12-year-olds or younger in the room because, I mean, obviously that's the essence of the message and the passage. But what I'm trying to say is that there's just not a lot of life that has been lived. And those of us that are like in middle-age crisis mode right now or even beyond that, you know, like we like realize you just got, you've got so much more to go and to grow into and to mature into 
And the reality is that's true for the church too, collectively. So the vine I want to say to you, like, like this is about you. Don't let anyone look down upon you because of your youthfulness. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you're 12 years old. But live into that. In fact, what I would say is to set an example for the rest of the churches. Set an example for the rest of the believers that gather together in churches that are much older than you so that they don't look down on you, but they look up to you. And you've got a lot of reasons why churches should look up to you. Here's what I know. In in just 12 years of ministry, you've seen more professions of faith and more baptisms than most churches who are much, much older than you. The, the fact that we have kids that are going away to a camp and then we, the week previous, had over 150 kids at our camp is something that should be looked up to because most churches don't have that. The fact that we've got over 940 jars of peanut butter and jelly going to kids this summer to feed them in their homes for a month is something that people would look up to, not down at, because stuff has happened here that doesn't happen that's normal. New churches don't make it past their second birthday. Only 2% of churches make it to the size that we've made it in. And then there have been other things throughout like the journey as a church to where like people are looking up to you. They're looking up to this church. I mean, you have had national recognition, whether you know this or not. Not just like regional or community recognition, but national recognition. A lot of it's come through your generosity. You're an extremely generous church. So much so that when we've had outside consultants look at our finances, they go, we don't don't see this anywhere else. And it's not because we have like a couple of rich people because we don't, unless you're in that category and you just haven't expressed yourself yet. Um, we We don't have that. We just have a lot of people who are faithful and obedient to like scriptural, like generosity. We do. Uh, to the point where um, in our fourth year of church's life, we, we had a, a challenging time financially because we moved, like, we moved into this building and then lived into the like, lease that increased our second year that was here. And it was real challenging. So I went and um, had some, uh, spent some time with um, kind of a stewardship guy and spent some time with him. And he was like, hey, you need to do these things, these things, these things. And we were already doing about 80% of those things. We, we tweaked a couple more things. And then that year, in year five of our church's life, our giving increased by 40%. That's unheard of. And it was so unheard of that that guy actually hired me to do content writing for him. So you became known among the body of believers as a church that was different as a church that we could look up to, not down at, even though we were only five years old. I mean, I was writing content for this guy whose business serviced hundreds, over 500 churches in the United States. And countless numbers of thousands of people. And then just a couple of years ago, he sold his business for $4 million. And some of you are thinking, I need to coach churches on finances. <laughs> yeah, like that's the recognition that you have. That's an amazing thing that God did through you that, that other churches started looking up to. It continued in generosity. In 2012, we did our um, first capital campaign, the Dream Church campaign. Um, and, and some of you were around for that. We didn't even know what we were actually getting the money for. We just knew like we needed more money for the next step because this building was like, you know, it was in foreclosure and we didn't know if we were gonna be here, if we were gonna move to a piece of property that the church has. And so, you know, so we just started raising money. And about halfway through the campaign, the guy who owns the Capital Campaign Consulting Company wanted to hire me to go help other churches because of your general. They should have hired you, not me. They should have hired you because of what did in that. And those are just a couple of examples where nationally we were getting recognition as a church because we lived into this fight that we've been called to, this good fight that we've been called to. And so I wanted to pick this text because I wanted to say to you, you might be 12 years old and I don't know how you perceive the church, but what I know is that we can operate with so much faith and love and missional purpose that we can be looked up to, not down at. And I also wanted to say this, if there's one category of people that I really want to speak to today, it's some of our young people that are in the room. And I don't know how you would categorize, like all of us at some level could, could consider ourselves young people. Like if you go back to Genesis, 
Like people lived a long time in Genesis. So if, like, if you're alive and you're breathing, like you're young. But there are some like young people in the room that, that I wanted to speak to today. And so I don't know where the line is. I was struggling with that line of like age. And so I don't want to really put one on there, but I, I want to challenge some people in this room. So there are some people that go to our church that were in the youth group at the church that I served prior to starting this church. And now they're starting families of their own with babies. And, and so they're like kind of in that, like we're about to cross over that 30 line. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But what I want to say to you is that at this point in the church's life and at this point in your life, if you're in this room, you have a responsibility to live your life in such a way that this skepticism that the world has about Jesus's followers can be turned and reversed to where no one looks down upon followers of Jesus. You've seen those shirts sometimes that says, hey, Jesus, save us. And then on the back, it says, from your followers. Let that not be said of you. Let that not be said of our church. Instead, let it be said, hey, because of these followers, I want to follow Jesus. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, don't let anyone despise you. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you're, you're a teenager or maybe younger. Don't let anyone look down upon you because your church is only in their teens. Don't let anyone look down upon you. But how many of you know that you can't control other people? If you know that you can't control other people, raise your hand. If you don't have your hand raised, we need to have another conversation on another day because your life's gonna be hard. It's gonna be real, real, real hard if you think you can control other people. Spouses, you can't control your spouse. Amen. Anyway, yeah, like you can't do that. You can't control other people. So it's interesting that Paul would say, don't let anyone look down upon you because you can't control anybody's perception, right? You can't. But what you can control is your actions that either validate or oppose somebody's perception of you. You can, by your own control, influence the perception of others and either validate or oppose their perception of you. And that's what Paul's getting at in this one verse for young church and for young people that are in the room. Don't let anyone have ammunition or evidence to look down on you because you're young. But instead, set an example in five ways. The first one is speech. If you're taking notes, write it down, speech. Not the ability to stand up and give a great oratory message for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's not the speech he's talking about. He's talking about any of the ways that you use your words. And that means that the way that you talk, the way that you text, and the way that you type, it matters. The words and the way you use the words and the way you talk, the way you text, and the way you type, it matters. Set an example for the believers in speech. We live in a crazy world right now where words matter. Agreed? Hashtag words matter. I don't know who came up with the phrase sticks and stones. You, you know that one. Y'all say it with me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. I, I haven't cussed a lot in church, but there's like, that's just not true. It's not true. I don't know who came up with that. And, and I don't know if they lived in a bubble. I don't know if they never talked with anybody. I don't know if they never had a zit. I don't know like what happened. But that person like was isolated from reality because look, sticks and stones, they do break brains and words, they actually hurt. They, they do hurt. In fact, there's one, one quote that I, I came across that said, um, tongue has no bones, but it is strong enough to break a heart. And a lot of people, when they talk about like the power of our words, they'll, they'll talk about the tongue, the literal physical tongue being the most powerful muscle. In the it's actually eight muscles. So it's kind of like, that's a myth. You know, it's not the most powerful muscle. There's eight muscles and, and like, there's no real way to measure that. But, but what we do know is that our, our tongues never get tired. That's funny, but like, you, like your tongues never fatigue. And, and part of that is because of what's happening. Like your tongue is doing something all the time, all the time. And so it, it doesn't get tired. And, and our words are doing something all the time. You might think that the moment they come out of your mouth, they're done. Mm-mm. Uh, nope. They are rippling into eternity. They are that powerful. And the person who quoted, like, who quoted, like, or said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. They, they clearly didn't read scripture because scripture says how powerful the tongue is. 
not speaking about like the physical, literal strength of the tongue, but the power of our words. Uh, just a couple of passages that are found in scripture that, that, that refer to this. In James, um, James writes about the taming of the tongue. Uh, he goes through a couple of verses and talks about the importance of preaching and, being te- and teaching and being sound in our teaching because those that teach the Bible are held to a higher standard than anybody else. Not fair, but it is the way it is, okay? Um, but then he talks about, listen to this, he uses um, uh, the bit in a horse's mouth. Do we have any people that ride horses? Any people that ri- have ridden a horse? Like, the way you control the horse is through the bit that is in the horse's mouth. Just a little thing that's about that long controls that incredible beast. Um, anybody been on a cruise ship, a big boat, any boat? We'll go with any boat. Any boat? Yeah. A little thing called a rudder, what does it do? It controls the boat. Something that's little can influence something that's big. That's the power of that. And then listen to this. Listen. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Those of us that grew up in the 80s with Smokey the Bear, yeah, we know that. (laughs) A spark can start a forest fire. Um, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. He goes on and he talks about like how powerful it is because sometimes like evil happens because of the tongue. Then listen to verse nine. With it, we bless our Lord the Father and with it, we curse people who are made in the image and the likeness of God. Like we can do that with this thing. We can do that through our words. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The point is that you have control of the words that you talk with, that you text with, and that you type with. You have control of those words, and those words have power, power to bless or power to curse. Proverbs says, the wisdom writer says in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of our tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And once those words are out of your mouth, you cannot get them back. Um, one of the stupidest decisions I ever made in ministry was when I was a student pastor. And um, I was trying to illustrate this message that like once the words are out of your mouth, like you can't get them back. And the, the greatest example that I could come up with was like toothpaste. When toothpaste goes out of the tube, it doesn't go back in the tube, right? And some of you just forget about it and you start all over. If you get too much, you just, you don't try to get it back in. You're not like sitting there trying, because you can't get it back in. So I, I just squeezed a tube of toothpaste down on a paper plate and I said, hey, if any of you can get this toothpaste back in this tube, I'll give you a prize. It's a bag of candy. And um, so this one kid was like, I'll do it, you know, and there's always that kid in the youth group. And um, so he came up and he's sitting there. I didn't know how he's going to do it, but he ends up like getting the toothpaste in his mouth and then trying to like blow it back into the tube. Well, I was a dumb youth pastor. I didn't know that fluoride was toxic to your body. And he was swallowing some of that toothpaste, which meant he shouldn't have got that bag of candy. But he got it back in. Um, and then he ate the candy before he was rushed to the hospital for poisoning. He almost died. I almost killed a kid trying to make a point. Let that be an example to you. Like take to heart what I'm saying. Okay. Or I might kill you anyway. Like, (laughs) listen, listen, once they're out, you can't get them back. And I was thinking about the significance of this on father's day, because when we were talking about setting an example in speech, some of the most life-giving things that you can say or life-condemning things that you can say have been said through the relationship of parent to child. And one of the things that, that you can see just from a countenance on a, pa- a person's face, a child's faith, or the behavior in their life is whether your words have been a blessing or a curse if they've been life-giving or death-giving. There, there is that much power. And, and, Certain children's lives have been co- like charted in course because of words that have been spoken from their parents. And maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you've had that experience and you know how powerful the tongue is. I think if there's anything that our culture could look at right now and go, you know what? I think Jesus is worth following. It would be the way that we talk, the way that we text, and the way that we type, especially on social media.
And so I was just thinking, well, how do we set an example? Well, really quickly, I asked the questions. Do I even need to speak? Because you know what? Most of what you say, you don't even need to say. Like, I've read some of your posts, and you've read some of mine, and I'm like, that was stupid. Like, what? I mean, did, did I need to share that opinion? No, I didn't. Um, and neither did you. Um, look, this is my last one. I can say that. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-three says, watch your words and hold your tongue. You'll save yourselves a lot of grief. Men, husbands, like, you know what I'm talking about there? I thought I'd hear a lot of amens from you guys. You will save yourselves a lot of grief. Liz asked me a question the other day. I go, I'm not answering that. I don't know how to answer that. I'm not going to talk. Proverbs 17, 28 says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning that they should hold their tongues. Do you even need to say what you're thinking? No. No, you don't. But if you do need to say, ask yourself this question. Can I say this? in love. Paul introduces a phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 that hasn't been introduced in scripture before that. And he said, truth in love will grow people into maturity. What that means is that your tongue, your words, they have the power to, to bless and to curse, to bring death or to bring life. They have the ability to help a person grow into the person they were created to be or they have the ability to hurt. If you are going to speak, speak truth in love so that they can be built up. So here's how you do that. You ask, am I about to speak in a way that will be helpful or hurtful? Will this bring life or will this bring death? And if you can learn to think before you speak, you will set an example for the believers in speech. Really quickly, next thing, our conduct. We can set an example for believers in our conduct. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect, not at all. In fact, we'll get down to that in just a little bit. This doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. When, when you take the word conduct back to its original use in Greek language 2,000 years ago, the word conduct means a way of living, a way of life. What, what that means to me is, is there a pattern of your life that is an example of Jesus? Is there a portfolio, if you will, that is an example of Jesus? Because we all have those snapshots. Y'all remember Polaroids? Anybody remember Polaroids? They, they've kind of come back in recent years where you can take these like instant pictures. Like every decision you make, every interaction that you make with a person, there's a, there's a Polaroid picture being taken of that moment. And it's going into a portfolio. And so when you have interactions with people, hey, there's that Polaroid, They're next to a Polaroid, next to a Polaroid, next to a Polaroid, next to a Polaroid. You're building a portfolio of a pattern of living that people are taking a look at and they'll perceive one way or the other. The question is, when a person looks at the portfolio of your life in completion, what will give evidence to? What will it give evidence to? An example someone they can look up to or something that they would look down at? What will they say about the pattern of your life? On Father's Day, um, like it's, it, it comes to kind of like this moment for me every Father's Day. It happens other times, but like I, I wake up on Father's Day and I just wonder on Father's Day, like what like my kids are really thinking about me. I get more than any other day. And um, and so like, that's, that's kind of my perception. And a couple of years ago, Laney and Braden, um, they were like, oh, we got this great idea. We wanted to make you a mug that said, good, good father. You're a good, good father on it. And I was like, man, that's cool. Somebody should write a song about that. <laughs> well, they had. Um, but <laughs> and we've sung it. But they wanted to make this mug because they thought it, like, that would be a good mug for me. But they also, I thought, well, you should sell that because there will be a lot of people that buy that for their fathers because what we know is that the the number one Father's Day gift is mug. Number two is a tie. You can put it on the tie too. Good, good father. Anyway, I was like, because that's what we get. That's what we get on Father's Day, mugs and ties. Thanks, everybody. Anyway, you know, like, so that's what we do. Like, good, good father. Like, that's, that's the perception that I want in that. But so I was like thinking, is my portfolio, like, does that give indication that I'm a good, good father? And, and you can extend that to any, like, any relationship, when people look at you, do they go, oh, that's a good, good mother, a good, good father, a good, good sibling, a good, good child? Is that a good, good friend? Is that a good, good follower of Jesus? Is it a good, good father? It doesn't have to be perfect because nobody, nobody thinks that you should be perfect. Not one person. 
but they do want to see what your pattern of life is like. So question for you, just like we asked the question, do you need to speak? Is what you're about to say going to be spoken in love? Here's the question about your conduct. What does the portfolio of your life look like at this point? Like if people saw all the Polaroids, what would the portfolio look like of your life? And here's the good news. If it's not in the category of good, good, guess what? We've got some good, good news. And the good, good news is that Jesus died so that your life could be changed and transformed forever for the better, looking like his. So the portfolio for the rest of your life can point to good, good. Your speech, your conduct. The third one, your love. I mean, I don't know what to say necessarily about love, except that um, this type of love is different than most of us think of when we think of love. Um, it comes from a Greek word, agape. Everybody say agape. Now, in the Greek language, they had four words that they would use that we would translate into the word love. They had four of them. One of them is agape, and agape is the highest form of love because it's sacrificial love, and it's the love that God has for us. It's love that places others before oneself. And this is the virtue and the value that we're constantly being taught from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible to strive for this love that we have for God and this love that we have for others that is selfless, it's sacrificial, it puts them and it puts God before it puts us. This is the love that we're called to and yet I don't know this describes the body of believers too well. I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I don't think this is a new thing either. Because 2,000 years ago, Paul, when he was writing to a church, not an individual like Timothy, but a church, um, a church in this city called Corinth, he, he writes some words to some people who thought that they were better than others. They thought that what they brought to the table in, in the context of the church was way better than what other people brought to the table. And so when he, when he um, was writing to that church, he says, look, like what you bring to the table is no more important than what that other person brings to the table. Your gifts are no more important than what other people give. And like some people, they love put the pastor on a pedestal. Look, the pastor's gifts are just a certain set of gifts that are to be used in the body. And it's no more important than the gifts that you have when you're filled with the Holy Spirit to be used within the body. We all have this level of gifts. And then he says, by the way, at the end of this, gifts aren't even gonna matter. You know what's gonna matter? Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And then he writes something that's really important, and that is what love looks like. Because some people had forgotten what love looks like. Can you believe that? People would forget what love looks like. Now, you've probably heard these words at a wedding. These words were not written for married couples. Now, they apply to married couples, but they're not written for a marriage ceremony necessarily. These are written for people that have forgotten what love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13, we get the list. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It is not irritable. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Pause real quick. We're being taught, listen, I feel like I need to say, I can say it my last time. We're being taught that love means acceptance of all behavior. And that's not what love means because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. There's right doing and there's wrongdoing. Love rejoices at right doing. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. I'm a parent with four kids. They're not perfect. They're awesome because two of them are in the room. They're awesome. <laughs> they do wrong. I love them. We'll never stop loving them no matter how much wrongdoing they do. Hey, I love you. No matter how much wrongdoing you do, I will still love you. I will never stop loving you, but I will not rejoice at your wrongdoing. Like, do you, are y'all tracking? Do I need to go into more detail or are y'all good? Okay. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the right. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. This is the love that you're called to, and to set an example for the believers in. Because this is the example that you have in Jesus. You know, we were taught growing up the golden rule. Y'all know the golden rule. Love others as you want to be loved. There's a platinum rule. 
And the platinum rule is love others as Christ loved you. Because when we love others the way that we want to be loved, what that fails to miss is the sacrifice that Jesus made. But when we love others the way that Jesus loved us, we recognize that there is no greater love than a one who lays down his life for a friend and that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The love that we're called to display for the world that will be an example and that will draw all people to the Father is a love that is sacrificial, exemplifying the same sacrifice that Jesus sacrificed for you. If you can learn the platinum rule, You'll be setting an example and people will look up, not down, based on your age or based on the age of our church. Set an example in faith. That's the fourth thing really quickly. Faith, as I've said, every time the word faith is brought up in our church, faith is a churchy word for trust. It just means trust. And here's how we set an example in our faith. We trust in who God is, not in how we feel. We trust in who God is, not in how we feel. We trust in who God says we are, not who the world says we are. You'll set an example of faith if you'll trust in who God is, not what you feel. And you'll set an example for people in the faith and outside of the faith when you trust in who he says you are rather than other people say that you are. And when life moves into battleground, hold on to a couple of truths. Here are two that I hold on to almost every day of my life. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Maybe you learned it in kids, you know, in kids who trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not heart as in like the seat of your emotions, but the center of who you are. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not onto your own understanding. Like I lean into my own understanding all the time. I don't know about you, but I come up with all kinds of reasons why I'm right and the plan should go according to my plan. Does that happen to you? Are you like justifying? You're like, Lord, you're not making sense. And he's like, oh, hold on. (laughs) In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths. Does anybody know? Straight. He'll make your path straight. Who will make your path straight? He will, God will. Who will? God will. Will you? No. Will I? Mm Mm-mm. Will God? Yeah. He will. Is it straight now? Maybe not. Will it be? Yes. Another one that's become like my leadership mantra, my go-to scripture in leadership, and that is Romans 8, 28. God works together, works all things together for the good of those who... uh, Love him and are called according to his purposes. Who works things together for the good? God. Do you? No. Do I? No. Who does? God does. And he works them together. Like things that we can't imagine coming together will come together for good if you love him. If you what? If you love him. The condition is what you can control is whether you love him or not, whether you'll seek him or not. And if you will, he'll work it together for the good. And here's what I would say. If you love him, listen, listen. If you love him, he will work it to good. And guess what? If it's not good, he's not done. If it's not good, he's not done. And so as long as you are controlling what you control, which is your love of God, if you love him, it's not good. He's not done. Last thing, purity. It's the last thing that he says, set an example in. And boy, if there's anything our culture needs an example set for them, it's in the area of purity. It's in the area of purity. The word purity in the Greek, it actually means sinlessness. And I'm like blown away by that because I'm like, man, sinlessness, that doesn't sound achievable, but yet we're called to set an example of this. I don't don't think the expectation is that we'd be perfect. Otherwise, like Jesus would have figured out some other way. But, but what I do know is that in Christ, like we might not be sinless, but we'll sin less. That, that's the call. That's the move. It's to move towards Christian perfection. It's to move towards perfection in love. And it's to control what we can control in the area of our sin so that we're not consumed by it. We've said it all the time. Kill sin or it will kill you. And, and I was asking the Lord for just a fresh word for that because I've said that before. And he said that this is what he spoke to my heart. I think it will speak to you. This is what he said. He said, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you wouldn't have to die to it. Like Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you wouldn't have to die to it. Like he's already died to it. You don't need to. 
And if we believe what the scripture says is that when he came out of the grave, he defeated sin and death and you're no longer a slave to sin, meaning that because of the spirit of God living inside of you as a youth or even as a young church, you can sin less. But you have to understand, purity does not mean that we figure out where the line is on right and wrong and we walk as close as we can to that line. That's what I thought it meant when I was a youth. Where's the line? Don't cross that line. It's like going up to the edge of the cliff and sticking your toes out. You're flirting with danger. What I've learned is purity is recognizing the things that break God's heart for your life and getting as far away as possible from them. Youth, if you're a young person in this room, this, this room is full of testimonies from people who've crossed lines. And they crossed the line because they started flirting with the line. If you're a student here and you've been flirting with a line of right and wrong, get as far away from that line as possible so that you don't have a testimony of so many of us in this room that would say, oh, if I could just go back, my greatest regret is the moment that they approached that line and crossed it. Set an example. And church, set an example. One of the metaphors for the church is that you would be the bride of Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than a woman in a wedding dress. Nothing more beautiful. When all is said and done at the vine, the greatest accomplishment that Paul says we can ever have as a pastor. And when, when the vine decides they're going to get a fellowship hall, you know, the place that smells musty and old and it has tile flooring. <laughs> and when y'all decide one day that you're going to put a, put a, like a, a wall of pastors, you know, have you ever been in that fellowship hall where it's like every pastor that's ever been, the pastor there has like an oil-based canvas painting. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you get that, I'll come back for a photo, whatever. When you get that, when it's me or Andrew and, and whoever's after Andrew, because there'll be somebody after Andrew, and if they could put your photos in a church directory, which thank God I never decided to, that y'all would have to do that. Can I get an amen on that? That might be the best decision I've ever made as a pastor. But when all is said and done, the greatest admonition that can be given to a pastor and to you as a person who is in the body of Christ is that we presented our church to Jesus as a pure and spotless bride. Let that be so. This world needs an example of the difference that the power of God's love in Jesus can make. And in order for the world to get that example, you need to set an example for one another. <laughs>